Then the family name in Israel will be known as the family of the one whose sandal was removed. Boy, that's a very specific set of instructions. It's very detailed. No doubt about what's involved here. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last couple of weeks we were talking about the Bible and passages from the Bible and interpretations of those passages from the Bible. And this does relate to common errors because these interpretations are often kind of black and white, but there's a lot of gray area in these biblical passages, too. A lot of disagreement. So this week we're going to start with one from Exodus, is that right? Yeah, and uh, this has to do with Jewish dietary laws, the laws of kosher. Mm -hmm. And there's a very intriguing law. You know, Christians usually know about the Ten Commandments. And by the way, there are two different versions of the Ten Commandments in which the verses got numbered differently in the Protestant and Catholic Bibles. So when you start getting into the higher numbered commandments, depends on whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, whether the Eighth Commandment is one thing or another. So it's something to be aware of. But there are over 600 commandments in the Bible. A lot of them explicitly rejected by Paul in his writings, so Christians felt free to choose which ones applied to them. And there's a whole interesting history of selecting things that you choose to obey and and others that you don't. The Sabbath law being a classic example where Christians change their own worship day from the day after the Jewish Sabbath uh, eventually, and Seventh-day Adventists, interestingly, going back and saying that's not biblical. <laughs> Sunday was not the Sabbath traditionally, oh, so you get all those kinds of distinctions. But sometimes the commandments are just hard to understand, and this is the one that occurs in Exodus 23:19. It's repeated in Exodus 34:26 and in Deuteronomy 14:21. So various authors thought it was important, but we don't know why they thought it was important. It's, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, this sounds like a very odd recipe. Why would you want to? How likely would anybody be to violate this commandment? And whatever the original context was, was lost over the centuries. And the rabbis who created the body of discussion and debate called the Talmud in Judaism couldn't come up with a really good explanation. And what they did was create what they call putting a fence around the law. If there's a law that says God wants you not to do something, then this may be referred to something that we don't quite get. So let's be super careful. And it would be just a good idea, not only not to boil young goat in mother's milk, but not to cook milk and meat together in any dish. And not only that, eventually some groups developed uh, that said, okay, let's be super careful when we're cooking things. And in those days where people were using a lot of clay pots and cast iron and so on, had pores in it where you might have remnants of previous dishes trapped. They said, you shouldn't cook milk-based dishes in the same vessels as meat-based ones. Mm -hmm. That would sully the cookware, right? Right, and it would make the food non-kosher. 
So you had to have two sets of cookware in the house. And some would say, okay, so you need two different cabinets to keep these in. Um, some would say you should uh, not serve milk and meat in the same meal. There might be some left in your teeth, uh, shreds of meat when you take a bite of cheese and so on. Right. Yeah. This gets extended in every which way. It gets it very extreme. But the whole idea here is whatever this is about, we're going to make sure that we don't get anywhere near violating this prohibition. But that didn't keep Jewish scholars from continuing to try to decide what the, the logical reason might have been. And Moses Maimonides is one of the great Jewish lawgivers, well, not lawgivers, but scholars, commenters on the law, said the law must be connected somehow to a prohibition against idolatry, which may have been true, that this may have been something with idol worship. In the late Middle Ages, we have Obadiah Sforno and Solomon Lundschnitz suggested that the law referred to a specific foreign Canaanite religious practice in which young goats were cooked in their own mother's milk. Uh, so this would have been some kind of ceremony where you're trying to get supernatural aid from the gods uh, to get more goat. You cook young goat in its mother's milk and it sort of feeds the milk to the dead goat pieces, which then multiply and, you know, not literally, but this would encourage the birth of more goats. Well, that was an interesting suggestion. And then in modern times, a text called the Birth of the Gracious Gods, which was found at Ugarit uh, in Mesopotamia, was interpreted by some of its discoverers as saying that it was a ritual to ensure agricultural fertility, which involved the cooking of a young goat in its mother's milk, followed by the mixture being sprinkled on the fields. Mm. And uh, you would read that in a lot of biblical commentary for a while. Uh, but other more recent sources argue that this translation is incorrect, that they were reading into it something to match the speculation of the earlier rabbis rather than something that was actually in the text. Uh, but it certainly seems possible that this had something to do with a religious practice specifically that was supposed to be avoided. Mm -hmm. um, another example of an offense around the law, by the way, a very famous one, would be um, the prohibition against graven images and worship of graven images and making graven images for worship, which is in the Ten Commandments, but um, was then extended by Jews to say, OK, no sculptures of any kind. But um, for a while, uh, some Jews at least engaged in flat art. And we actually have at least one synagogue discovered from Jesus' time, which has mosaics in the floor with images in it. Mm -hmm. And this extends into Islam, too, doesn't it? Yes. And Islam takes it even further. And uh, you also have some medieval religious depictions in art. Um, but the mainstream of Judaism rejected the whole idea of visual art. For a long time, there were no famous artists who were Jewish. Uh, Christians went to and fro on this, and there was a huge division in the church in early times between the iconoclasts who were against all depictions of God or of Jesus and those who were pro and the Eastern Church eventually adopted the position. You couldn't have graven images because that's specifically forbidden by the Bible, but you could have paintings. 
you could have mosaics, you could have paintings with divine subjects on them, as long as they weren't three-dimensional. And of course, they proceeded to take those paintings and surround them with uh, sculpted surroundings so that the, most of the painting, except for the figures, got embossed, often with silver uh, or even gold. And in the West, the whole idea just got thrown out. And they started carving sculptures of, of everything except God. And by the Renaissance, they're even painting pictures of God himself. Um, so Michelangelo being a famous example in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, not, not just doing it, but doing it very prominently Yes, <laughs> in sacred spaces. Some of the Jewish commentators saw that there might be an ethical aspect to it. Um, one called Sforno argued that using the milk of an animal to cook its offspring was inhumane based upon uh, a similar prohibition against gathering eggs from a nest while the mother bird watches, which was thought to be a wicked thing to do. And another one called Chaim Ibn Attar compared the practice of cooking of animals in their mother's milk to the barbaric slaying of nursing infants. Yes, well, who wouldn't make that connection? Right, and, <laughs> and people who protest against uh, milk-fed veal could find similar sympathy. Yeah, right. So it's not so much that it's misinterpreted, it's just that it's had uh, widely varying interpretations of what it means to people or whether it means anything. It very much varies among different readers. Well, and the speculation as to where it comes from, I am choosing to believe that this was a religious practice, a ceremonial practice that was considered heathen at some point by the pious. Yeah, I agree. That seems very likely, but we'll probably never know. Yes, that seems to be a logical thing. Uh, we are so far removed from that practice that we, uh, we can't exactly know, but it's really interesting to speculate. Okay, so here we go to the Christian scriptures, uh, what Christians call the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of Luke, and the phrase prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to go through it. You can look up the story if you want to get the whole story. It's quite long. Uh, it's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And Jesus is talking about uh, accepting a young man who took his inheritance early and set out and just wasted it in riotous living uh, and then came back and his father accepts him with open arms while the brother who was willing to wait until his father died to get his inheritance is resentful and upset. Um, there are some scholars, some German scholars in particular, put forward a hypothesis that this is one of those passages which the early Christian church developed uh, to justify non-Jews becoming the prominent leaders in Christianity. Um, the argument goes that the Jews may have had the revelation of God first, uh, but they misunderstood it and that the ones who they viewed as the pagan outsiders ultimately are beloved by God as long as they repent and they can be gathered in and it would uh, be part of that whole tradition saying that you don't have to become Jewish first in order to become Christian, which is something that was a huge transformation because the early church had taken the position that you had to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. And um, so this becomes a very important uh, message for them. There are lots of other people who say it just has to do, of course, with forgiveness and charity and the fact that God loves everybody and that um, just because somebody has been a sinner, you should forgive them. Well, the interesting thing is the word prodigal. 
in English. Prodigal means wasteful. Uh, somebody who is gives away his money or spends it in a wasteful fashion is prodigal. He's just spending money by a spendthrift, we call it, which has always seemed to me a, an odd word in English, spendthrift, because it's not about being thrifty at all. Yeah, it suggests one thing and it means another. Right. However, a lot of people have only the vaguest memory of this whole thing. And the phrase prodigal son, to them, what they remember is not the spending of the money, but the return back home. And so it comes to, prodigal comes to mean in many people's mind, uh, someone who returns a prodigal is somebody not who spent a lot of money, but somebody who has come back. And the place you find it the most is in sports writing. When uh, somebody leaves, if you just put the phrase uh, prodigal son into your search engine on Google and then choose news to narrow it, the vast majority of instances will be sports reports. And I just chose one. And as you know, I'm not a sports fan, so you may have more background on this than I do. Choosing an athletic director is one of the most important decisions a school can make. With that in mind, Syracuse hiring John Wildhack away from ESPN is a home run. There are a ton of reasons to like the hire, but perhaps the biggest one is that Syracuse has given Wildhack a chance to come home. When he starts his appointment as AD in mid-August, he'll be the prodigal son returning to where it all started. <laughs> now, I'll bet you anything that he got more money as the athletic director than he did earlier. Well, he needed it because he had gone and spent it all. <laughs> From his previous appointment, apparently. Yeah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is true that that's how it is commonly understood. I mean, somebody who went out and wandered, was uh, lost, wayward. This whole meaning of being wasteful has sort of been lost in that phraseology. I think the whole phrase has gotten attached more to the reactions of the people welcoming the guy back to the guy himself. It doesn't tell you anything about him that he's a prodigal son. It's we welcome him like a prodigal son is usually the context. We're just really happy to see him. That whole passage or the little excerpt you read from that story is a little sad and not just because it reinforces that use of the prodigal son that uh, leaves behind its original meaning, but isn't that first sentence a little kind of depressingly somewhat true <laughs> choosing an athletic director is one of the most important decisions a school can make oh yeah <laughs> right well it must be important because they certainly get paid a lot more than the professors <laughs> and usually more than the president too yeah, yeah. Uh, okay sore point with me as a former professor <laughs> right yeah yeah and uh you know i am a sports fan but uh, that one makes me cringe well, as you know, money is the root of all evil, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's right. So here we are on to the next one. Okay, this is First Timothy 6.19. And uh, the original phrase is not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. So here's the context. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 
So that's an interesting part of this whole tradition of anti-wealth, uh, sharing the wealth, being kind to the poor, all those things that we were talking about in the last episode, very much a part of Christian theology and got sort of segregated in the later church to the monastic orders where uh, monks and nuns had to swear an oath of poverty although some of them then became immensely rich, uh, most notoriously uh, with the Franciscans, where St. Francis was really big on being poor, as poor as possible, and really insisting on the importance of poverty. And uh, we had such a great reputation for being non-corrupt that after he died, his uh, order became immensely rich with donations from people who thought they should reward this extreme embrace of poverty by making them wealthy so um what we see a big contrast with to me is the so-called prosperity gospel which is very big still in some quarters where people say you know god wants you to get rich and um if you do this prayer you'll um be rewarded with all kinds of worldly wealth and, and so on well, it was, it was Reverend Ike who used to say, uh, the lack of money is the root of all evil. <laughs> right. He's just flatly contradicting the Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what modern translations usually translate it as all sorts of evil. And I don't know Greek, so I couldn't tell you uh, whether they're reading something into it or if that's just an accurate reading of it. But it certainly fits the rest of the context of the sentence to say all sorts of evil, which is very different from saying the root of all evil. As it's saying, there are many kinds of evil consequences from loving money, but it's not saying all evil is rooted in the love of money. Uh, sloth, for instance, just being lazy, isn't primarily motivated by the love of money. So, um, to move on, another one that we hear a lot is the lion shall lay down with the lamb, or the lion shall lie down with the lamb. <laughs> whether it's uh, actively in the process of laying down or just lying there. <laughs> yeah. So Isaiah 11, 6, yeah, where he's predicting a peaceful messianic age. Now, uh, the Jewish tradition of the Messiah is that he is a warrior. The Messiah comes to lead the troops in a grand battle that conquers all the world and converts everyone to Judaism. And then you have a time of peace because now everybody's united, all worshiping the same God. And uh, so there are a lot of verses that refer to a, an ideal time of peace. And the context in Isaiah is slightly different from the popular quotation. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Christians jumped on that little child thing and say, aha, okay, that's Jesus. And you can certainly find paintings that depict it. The Jews, of course, did not see it that way. Um, but you notice wolf, leopard, and lion are all the animals of prey. So the two that get put together in the common saying is the lion and the lamb. This got projected in some people's imagination back into what's called prelapsarian Eden, that is before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, where um, animals would have lived in peace and therefore the animals, uh, the um, meat-eating animals would have been vegetarians. And there are some vegetarian Christians who actually point to that as an ideal 
Well, what about the plants, though? They're they're alive, too. Oh, no, they, they're not considered in the same category. Okay, okay. All right. In any case, just to get it squared away, the lion could never lay down with the lamb. The lion would have to lay down the lamb, right? <laughs> Well, in, in most uh, settings, yes. Anyway, this image of a paradise with all the animals being together uh, inflamed the imagination of a painter called Edward Hicks, American. He painted 62 versions of something that he called the Peaceable Kingdom. And a lot of people know Hicks' Peaceable Kingdom and are only aware of one of these paintings. But he did many, many of them. So you can go to all kinds of museums and see different ones. And you can just search for Hicks' Peaceable Kingdom and Google and pop up a whole bunch of different images of them. And the lion and the lamb uh, always featuring prominently in them. Yes. And uh, I'm probably going to make a mistake here. Was Rousseau also a painter of similar things? Oh, no, not Christian imagery. No, his uh, image of the, the lion with the uh, guy and the, the Arab in the desert is more exoticism. It's not a reference. Yes, okay. Okay, one more that could be very complicated is the image of the Tree of Life. And I guess most people know the Tree of Life is a pagan image, as as uh, an image of uh, being rooted in the soil and um, people being an organic part of nature and all of that. But in Christian and Jewish traditions, uh, it doesn't play a very large role. It has sometimes been used in stained glass windows and other places like that for a family tree. But a tree of life has a really interesting context in Genesis 2, 9 and 17. Adam and Eve are first warned not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's clearly how that it fits in. The, the story seems to imply that there was no need for conscience. There was no sin in the world. Adam and Eve didn't even know that being naked was bad until they ate of the fruit of the tree. By the way, the Bible does not say it was an apple. And uh, early European medieval tradition, it was often a fig. But um, at any rate, the idea is that guilt itself, the awareness of the possibility of evil, is a curse. And it comes from the initial disobedience of Adam and Eve. Well, um, the interesting part comes when in this passage from Genesis 2.22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man, that is Adam, is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, this is interesting from a lot of perspectives. Of course, one thing that's striking is God referring to himself in the plural. We talked about that uh, a while back. Christians often thinking, well, this is him referring to himself in the angels. Um other people saying, no, this is a, comes from a period when there was more than one God in, in people's beliefs and so on. We're not going to talk about that in particular, but it's the tree of life. So the implication here is having gained the knowledge of good and evil, that's one quality gods have that the humans didn't have before. And if they eat the tree of life, they'll live forever. And there's a long Mesopotamian tradition of the idea of, of seeking eternal life, and that's the Epic of Gilgamesh is largely about that, of trying to find out how we could avoid death. 
and a lot of religion is built in one way or another around it. It's saying, you know, God would have, uh, could have given us eternal life, but he chose not to. And why? Because he would become too much like God. God lives forever, but humans shouldn't. It's not something that gets focused on a lot because it presents God in kind of an unfavorable light. And it's usually kind of skipped over in discussions of this passage. And interestingly, comes up once more in the Bible, the tree of life, in Revelation, uh, chapter 22, verse 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So the author of Revelation is kind of reviving this idea and saying, okay, the tree of life existed at one time and it was because of the fall uh, never reached fruition but it's there there's a reason for it to have been created it's not there just to say here's eternal life but you can't have it it's saying eventually after the last judgment then the tree of life will come into its own the yielding its fruit in every month just i couldn't resist thinking that it had to do with harry and david's fruit of the month club yeah it probably does you're right (laughs) But Christians and sometimes mystics and others are are much more likely to use the tree of life image than mainstream Christians are. All right. So another curse from the fall has to do with women's pains in childbirth. Genesis 2.16 has God saying, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And that was seen as the pains of childbirth. It's not that women are going to be unhappy that they're having children, but that the process itself is painful. And this is to explain why bearing children is so painful. Uh, It's because of a sign of the fall. Now, there was a tiny minority of 19th century clerics who objected to the invention of anesthesia being used in childbirth on these grounds. And uh, it gets discussed a lot. It turns out they're really just a few. Uh, they were very tiny. It's not something that was broadly circulated. Um, but one clergyman was quoted as saying of chloroform, was a decoy from Satan apparently offering to bless woman, but in the end it will harden society and rob God of the deep, earnest cries which arise in time of trouble for help. So he thought the image of a woman crying out in labor was, you know, uh, belongs in the context of cries of prayer. And therefore it was, you know, offer up your pain to God. There's a whole tradition of that, especially in Catholic teaching, but you find it elsewhere as well. So God's reaction to being robbed of the cries of women in labor is not on record, but there were mutterings that infants delivered painlessly should be denied the sacrament of baptism. That's quotation from an essay called Utopian Surgery, Early Arguments Against Anesthesia in Surgery, Dentistry, and Childbirth. And we'll put up a link to that page if you want to read more details about it. It would be a mistake to suppose that this was a widespread abuse of scripture, um, but it's intriguing. And a thing I always found intriguing about it, the second half of that law is in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it thou wast taken for dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return so the idea that people have to labor in women labor in birth and men labor in agriculture 
growing the wheat that then creates the bread. Um, and they have to sweat while doing it. And I always thought, well, why didn't somebody argue that there shouldn't be air conditioning for men on their jobs? Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's just typical of the sexist ways that people tend to interpret the Bible. Well, and then there was the uh, news story uh, about a year ago. It was a study of air conditioning in the workplace. Do you remember this? Oh, right. And the discovery that men prefer to have the office much cooler and much more air conditioned than women. Right. But they want women to wear thinner and scantier clothing. The job. Your nylon legs sticking out there. Yeah, so there you go. The misogyny lives on. Yeah. Now, this could probably be put down to probably like many places in the Bible where it's just sort of describing the reality. Um, in sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children. Yes, it's very painful to go through childbirth. And that's really the way it was before practice of using some medications or form of painkiller in the process. Well, I want to end with one which um, I want to alert our audience is PG-13. So um, if you find uh, discussions of sexual things uh, disturbing, you might want to pause at this point. And this is about the sin of Onan in Genesis 38. Mm, Yeah, spilling the seed. Yes. So here's the original context in the law from Deuteronomy 25. When two brothers are living together, and people often did in those times, families stuck together after marriage as clans, and so you'd have three generations often living in the same group, and one of them dies without leaving a son, his widow must not be married outside the family to a foreigner. Instead, the brother-in-law must go to her, take her as his wife, and by doing so, perform the duty of a brother-in-law. The firstborn whom she will bear will continue the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be erased from Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's widow, then she must go to the elders at the city gate and declare, My husband's brother refuses to perform the duty of a brother-in-law in order to preserve the name of his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. Then the elders of the city are to summon him and speak with him. If he insists on saying, I don't want to marry her, then she is to approach her brother-in-law in in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal, spit in his face, and say in response, May this be done to the man who does not preserve the lineage of his brother. Then the family name in Israel will be known as the family of the one whose sandal was removed. Boy, that's a very specific set of instructions. It's very detailed. No doubt about (laughs) what's involved here. And interestingly, I always thought this must be one of those practices that had died out, like a sacrifice on the altar in Judaism. But no, there are Jewish communities which have continued the tradition of saying that the brother of a man who has died has an obligation to marry his widow. And the point of it is to get a son. Now, if he already has a son, it's not a problem. If he because a daughter that doesn't satisfy it so the whole point is to get a son do you know if this matters if the brother's already married is this oh no yeah bigamy is fine right no no well it's hard to know by the time deuteronomy was written because there's plenty of amounts of bigamy among the the elder figures of the jewish religion multiple wives were pretty common but ultimately jews become monogamous and uh, modern Jews, medieval Jews, too, were monogamous. But still, this idea of levirate marriage did continue in certain circles. 
However, what happens then, the sin of Onan assumes that you know this law and the context of it. And one of the things that is typical of a lot of Christian readings of the Bible is that they will take a passage from the Jewish Bible and isolate it and not really connect it with its context. So the story of Onan in, in Genesis 38, which was probably written long after the law that was first laid down in Deuteronomy 25, even though it would appear to be an earlier one by traditional beliefs, is that Onan is supposed to do this. Well, he goes ahead and has sex with Tamar, the widow of his late brother Ur, but he doesn't want to beget a child on her because that child would not be counted as his son. It would be counted as his dead brother's son. If his brother's widow fails to produce an heir, that is a male heir, then Onan would get more money. He would get more of the inheritance as a surviving brother. So he may have been mostly wanting sex or he may have wanted to hang on to money for whatever reason. He has sex with her, but he practices what we call withdrawal by spilling his seed on the ground. So he's having intercourse, but he's not impregnating her, which violates the whole point of Leverate Law, because impregnation is what it's all about. And he is killed as a result of this. This is a grievous sin. In modern times, a lot of churches, the Catholic Church for a long time, uh, at least on the lower parish level, taught that this was a law against masturbation. And generations of terrified young men were uh, threatened with hellfire and worse if they spilled their seed on the ground. Um, obviously, this whole spilling seed on the ground has nothing to do with female masturbation, which wasn't even imagined as a possibility uh, by male writers. So that it becomes entirely irrelevant. And onanism becomes the word for masturbation for a long time. And you find it all the time in 19th century writing about it. Uh, now, even the modern Catholic Church understands that this has to do with contraception. And in fact, in 1930, when the church encyclical denouncing all forms of contraception came out, they actually cited uh, Onan's story to justify their attitude uh, toward contraception. So they're saying it's not only bad to have contraception in this narrow, very arcane situation, but in all situations, which is really putting a fence around the law. So depends how you feel about things. Uh, some religious people have gone to say, well, so it may not be against masturbation, but masturbation is, is bad anyway for other reasons. Uh, it's not mentioned in the Bible, however. There's no acknowledgement of it as a phenomenon in any way. And so for some people, that is truly good news. Well, I thought I'd finish by just referring to an extreme example of taking a biblical verse out of context on purpose. This is a hilarious uh, parody sermon by the British comedian Alan Bennett, um, who was in a group called Beyond the Fringe. And in 1960, he first gave this, which became a classic. And there are several copies of it on YouTube. And we'll make a link to those. But it comes from the story in Genesis 27:11, And Jacob, um, the son of Isaac, is a younger brother who schemes to get the blessing 
of his father against Esau. And uh, some scholars think that this is one of the many stories in the Bible that explain why the Jews who arraigned, arrived late and marginally in what they considered the Holy Land that really deserved to prevail. The idea of the outsider who, uh, through intelligence and guile, and sometimes through courage, uh, manages to rise to the top, gets his way. And so uh, with his mother, he's, she's scheming to, uh, um, since Isaac has gone blind, having Jacob pretending to be Esau so that he can cheat Esau out of this blessing. Jacob objects to Rebekah, his mother, who's proposing this scheme about how you go in and claim to be Esau. He says, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. In other words, I don't have a hair. He's going to feel that I'm smooth. It's not Esau's arm. He knows Esau is hairy. And she says, well, you put this goatskin on your arm, and then he'll feel the hairs, and he'll think that it's Esau. Seems a little far-fetched. But anyway, he succeeds, and... um and he later uses another scheme, which you can read more of in, in Genesis, to get Esau to, to give up his his heritage. So this is kind of one of those unseemly stories where the founder of a faith who's thought to be great and pious is behaving in a way that most people would really disapprove of. So it's kind of embarrassing to begin with. So if you want to make jokes about a Bible story, this is a good context to take it from. And Alan Bennett does it, but he he doesn't really explicate the verse at all. He just quotes it and then takes off on this ramble, um, making fun of certain kinds of preachers and a marvelous accent. You just have to hear it to believe it, but it's it's really fun. It's not making fun of religion so much as it's making fun of some preachers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Paul, I, I started with a bad pun, and I'd like to end with one, if I may. Okay. Uh, I asked you what game God was playing when he created the universe, and you whiffed on that one, but maybe you know the name of Isaiah's horse. Do you know the name of Isaiah's horse? No. Well, uh, his horse's name was Ismi. Ismi? Ismi. It's very clearly stated in, in Isaiah. He says, I, and I said, woe is me. Oh, jeez. Oh, woe. Yeah, and if you don't know how to spell woe, by the way, that's also in my book. Well, uh, we'll end on that particular little misinterpretation of the Bible. Uh, we had a lot more sophisticated discussion that preceded that, but uh, we'll just end on that note. And thank you for everything, Paul. You're welcome. And talk to you later. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.